Thanks, Mike and Kate. Mike and Kate have just already, I suppose, opened up some, some challenging subjects and things to, uh, to think about uh, for us, whether we're parents or not, whether we're grandparents or not, whether uh, we've been coming here for a long time or uh, we're relatively new here. And as we begin looking at this chapter, I just want to carry on that thought, really, and, and ask you to think about for a minute what, what you would think uh, is the greatest threat to the church today. Uh, maybe, as we've just been hearing, is that you're a parent and you're thinking, if my uh, children grow up to know and trust the Lord Jesus, to follow him, to be Christians, what, what threats might they face in the future? Uh, as a church here in Chessington, what, what kind of threats do we face? Uh, when we uh, consider the church around the world, what, what are the big threats the church faces uh, looking into the future? What is the biggest threat to the church today? Maybe your head fills with all sorts of different answers. Maybe you think of persecution uh, around the world. Maybe you think about hostile anti-religious governments. Maybe you think about other religions or secularization or materialism or comfort or the ideologies of our culture. What threatens the church today? There are all sorts of big things out there, aren't there? It's a really important question for us to think about. Like I say, whether we're uh, parents or grandparents here uh, this evening or not, whether we're considering Christianity perhaps for the first time or not, it's important for us to think about what threatens the church, the people of God today. Forewarned is forearmed, as they say. And so it's an, it's an important question for us. It, it was also an important question for Israel thousands of years ago that we've just read about. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we began this new series in the book of Judges. And right at the start of the book, we began to see, didn't we, that, well, that Israel faces a, a whole host of threats. Most of those threats come in the form of people. It was the surrounding nations, armies, soldiers, iron chariots. Those were the things that threatened the people of God. Uh, at least that's what it seems like on the surface. Uh, because as, the, as we come to chapter 2 this evening, it's a bit like we get this kind of different camera angle on the same set of events. Some of that stuff would have sounded fairly familiar, and that's because it is. Uh, we're looking at the same events, for, but from a different angle. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw things from this kind of military, political perspective. Uh, Israel chose to compromise with rather than conquer the Canaanites, the, the people living in the land. And so on the surface, the greatest threat appeared to be the nations around them. But here in chapter 2, we get things from a more spiritual perspective. Uh, we get to see beneath the surface what's going on on the inside. And we quickly discover that, that, well, that Israel's greatest threat, its, its greatest enemy, it's not something out there. No, it's something in here. When you look beneath the surface, you quickly realize that the greatest threat to the people of God was and still is themselves. It's their own hearts. We can see that in Judges chapter 2 through this four-stage cycle that we're given. It's a cycle that in many ways summarizes the book as a whole. We're going to see it coming up again and again and again. 
it summarizes the book as a whole, and therefore it summarizes the problem with Israel. It shows us why everything goes wrong for them. But importantly for us, it also summarizes our greatest problem. It shows us what threatens us the most. So look with me again at chapter 2, verse 6, where we're going to see the first stage of this cycle, Israel's rebellion. Israel's rebellion. In 2, verse 6, we're taken back to the days of Joshua. And we're reminded just how good these times were for Israel. Look at uh, 2, verse 7. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. The people know and love the Lord. They've seen and experienced his goodness and grace. They trust his promises. They know his faithfulness. And so they serve him in wholehearted obedience. It is good times for the people of God. But then, verse 8, Joshua, their great and godly leader, dies. And as we began to see last week, it doesn't take very long for things to go downhill, does it? Verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. We've just heard, haven't we, this evening, of the importance of passing on the gospel to the next generation, to our children. And we can see straight away here why that is so important, why that's not just a nice lifestyle choice to have or, or something to add on with all the other clubs and activities that we do. We see why it is vital because just one generation after Joshua and this generation have no idea about the Lord. Not a clue. They don't know the Lord and they don't know what he has done for them. And so rather than live in wholehearted obedience to him, rather than listen to him and trust him and love him, verse 12 says they forsook him. They abandoned him. They, they rebelled against him. They turned their back on the Lord. And they went after other gods instead. And in case we don't, we don't feel the bite of that, verse 17 puts it in shockingly relational terms, doesn't it? Verse 17 says, the people prostituted themselves with other gods and they worshipped them. Despite God's deep, committed, covenantal love for his people, they decide to go elsewhere. God simply wasn't enough for them. In their minds, he, he didn't satisfy their desires. He didn't fulfill their dreams. He didn't provide the comfort and the security that they were looking for. And so they thought, well, maybe, just maybe these Canaanite gods have got something better to offer. Uh, the particular gods that we can see here are called the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Uh, they're plural there, that's deliberate because it's a, a kind of catch-all summary term for a whole host of different gods. Uh, but in general, the Baals, well, Baal was the god of the harvest. You went to Baal if you wanted the security of having plenty of food in your fridge. And Ashtaroth, well, 
the astros, they were the, she was the goddess of sex. I'll let you work out why people like to visit her temple. And so you see these gods, well, they were incredibly attractive to the people of their day. They promised security. They promised wealth, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction. However, the problem is we're going to see time and time again in this book of Judges was that these gods, they, they delivered none of those things. We thought about this this morning, didn't we, in Mark's gospel. That is how idols work. They, they take and take and take and take, and then they give nothing in return. They promise life, and they deliver death. And the same is true today. We might not go down to the local temple to worship some statue or pole, but, but under the surface, people are just the same, aren't they? We still live for the things that, that we think will provide us with security, with satisfaction. We still worship at the, the altar of sex, money, power. We want happiness. We want comfort. We want success. If you're a parent, we want those for our children. And we will do pretty much anything to get them. And so even as Christians here this evening, we can be tempted to worship the gods of the peoples around us. The voices of our culture become so much louder, don't they, than the voice of our creator. And so the result is that we begin to doubt God's goodness. We wonder if he's forgotten us. We forget him. And instead we wonder, we, we just wonder, maybe you've got it wrong. Maybe the world really does have something better to offer us. And it gets harder, doesn't it? Because, well, because the idols of our world, they're, they're not always bad things. In fact, they're often good things. They're good things that we turn into God things. Uh, useful things that we make ultimate things. Well, I'm not going to try and uh, guess what those things might be for you this evening. But let me just ask a few questions that, that might help you to, to evaluate, to, to expose where you might be tempted to live for the idols of the world around us. Just think about these for a minute. What is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? What do you rely on to comfort yourself when things go wrong or become difficult? What do you think most easily about? Where does your mind go when you're free? What preoccupies you? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What are you proudest of? What do you really want and expect out of life. What really makes you happy? Those answers will be different for each one of us uh, here this evening. And they'll change. They will change at different points in your life. Different stages in your life. So don't think that you've dealt with one and then it'll never come back. But whatever it is you're tempted to run after, whatever idol you're flirting with, Judges 2 is meant to be a wake-up call. 
it shows us that idolatry isn't just one of those unfortunate facts of life. It's not a minor mishap in the eyes of God. No, it's forsaking the Lord. It is spiritual prostitution. And so God takes it incredibly seriously. Which leads us to the second stage in our cycle, that is retribution. Uh, Look at verse 11 again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. How does God feel about idolatry? Well, verse 12 says he is angry. And anger, it's not, it's not irrational, it's not uncontrollable or unreasonable. No, this is the pure, jealous, righteous anger. It, it is an anger of love betrayed. Imagine a husband discovered that his wife was having an affair and his response was just to shrug his shoulders and say, well, it's no big deal. You win some, you lose some, you, you, you can't have it all. What would you think? Surely you'd question whether the, the guy really loved his wife at all. You'd wonder if he, if he actually valued their marriage, whether he truly cared about her. And you'd be right to wonder those things because, because that's what love is, isn't it? God's anger is born out of his love. It's because he loves his people that he is filled with a jealous anger for them. When they choose to wander off with other gods. Sometimes we talk about idolatry as though we're the victims. Poor me, the idols promised much and delivered little. Poor me, the idols promised life and only gave me death. Poor me, my my desires weren't fulfilled. My satisfaction not met. Poor me. But here we see, no, no, no. No, uh, idols hurt us, and idolatry hurts us, but it hurts God. We turn our back on him, and he is angry. And just look at how that anger is expressed. Verse 14, he says, "In In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. God had promised this. Back in Deuteronomy, God was, said he would, uh, he would deliver the people over to the hands of their enemies if they did not listen to him. And so he responds to their idolatry by doing just that, by handing them over to their enemies. Instead of being with them, verse 15 says he was against them. God is against his own people. And this idea of, of God punishing people by giving them what they want it's not, it's not unique to, to judges. Again, we find this come up again and again in Scripture. In, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he begins by trying to persuade them of their need of a rescue, of their need for Jesus. Just like in Judges, he says, you're hopeless, you're helpless, you need saving. And in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, he says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul says God is angry. He is angry. His wrath is being revealed against humanity. Why? Further down in verse 25, it's on the screen. 
you can see it there. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. God is angry because humanity has turned its back on him. It's suppressed the truth about God, squashed it down, ignored it. Taken God's good gifts and instead of responding with thankful praise to him, we've turned those gifts into objects of worship. Given our lives to created things rather than the creator, says Paul. And so God is angry. How is his anger revealed? Romans 1 verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. It's really easy for us to assume that God giving us what we want is a sign of his pleasure. That he must be really pleased with me to give me what I want. But Paul in Romans and, and the author of Judges says the opposite is true. Sometimes the very worst thing God can do is give us what we want. And that's the world that we live in, isn't it? It's a world experiencing the wrath of God as, he, as it chooses to live for all sorts of other things except for him. It's this idolatry that lies at the heart, the root of all that is wrong in our world. It's the root cause of the, the brokenness and pain that we see out there and in here. God gives us what we want. And it leads to disaster. Look back at Judges 2, verse 14. Again, it says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, who they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Israel has deserted the Lord. Verse 13, so they're defeated by their enemies. Verse 14, and in verse 15, the result is they are in great distress. They have been ruined by their own rebellion. They have fallen a long way from the days of Joshua. But then out of nowhere comes rescue. And that's the third stage in our cycle, rescue. The people were in great distress, but then verse 16 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Here we get our first mention of judges in the book. And they're going to come up a load more from this point on. We're going to meet 12 of them. Six major ones, ones you'll have heard of, Samson, Gideon and the like, and six minor ones. But before we meet them, we've got to understand that we're not talking about people in funny wigs and long gowns. These are not the judges of the law court. They are rescuers. They are heroes. Another word for them is deliverer. And so in the face of Israel's sin, in the face of its deep idolatry, God sends a deliverer. Why? Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Why does God send a rescuer? Why does he deliver Israel? Verse 18 says he's moved by their groaning. Not their repentance, not their cry for help, not their recognition of their deliberate sin and idolatry. No, God 
responds to their groaning. Israel have been given what they want and they don't like it. But rather than fold his arms and say, I told you so, Israel. God, in his amazing mercy and grace, intervenes. He comes to their rescue. He sends a judge, a deliverer. Like I said, we're going to see a lot more about how God rescues and the kind of people that he uses to do it. And they are a mixed bunch. But for now, I just wanted to see, just as we come towards the end, about how Israel responds to God's amazing grace. What will they do after experiencing God's undeserved kindness to them? Will they, will they change their ways? Will they repent and recommit themselves to the Lord? No. Verse 19, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshipping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. In response to God's rescue, the people rebel again. And this time the rebellion is worse than before. Which brings us to the fourth and final stage of our cycle, repeat. Repeat. The picture we're given in Judges chapter 2, this picture that sums up the book, is of this dreadful downward spiral. Again and again Israel rebel. Again and again God sends a rescuer. And again and again Israel responds with deeper and more devastating sin. That is the picture we're given. You know, Western society, us, we, we've managed to, to convince ourselves, haven't we, that, that humanity is on this kind of permanent upward trajectory. Thanks to us and our genius, things are only getting better. We're, we're leveling up, we're moving on, we're pressing forward. But Judges 2 brings us crashing back down to earth, doesn't it? It says the reality is the opposite. Without God's gracious intervention, the story of humanity is of a downward spiral. A downward spiral away from God and towards disaster. And what is true of Israel is true of every single human heart. Israel has experienced the power and provision of God. They've known his goodness and grace, his rescue and restoration, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough to break the addictive hold of sin on their hearts. In verse 21, God says he'll no longer drive out the nations before them. Instead, he'll leave them in the land, verse 22, as a test. Living with the Canaanites, as we're going to see, is not fun times for Israel. The purpose is to test them, to, to wake them up, to bring them to their senses and see what a mess they're in. But they don't. They don't wake up. They refuse to see. Despite God's repeated warnings, they are continually drawn away from him and towards other things. And so, just like the drug addict who knows it's killing him, but still wants more, our hearts are enslaved by and addicted to the thing that in the end will kill us. And so Israel, they don't need rescuing from the people around them. They need rescuing from themselves. The greatest danger they face is not the iron chariots of their enemies, 
It is the sinful idolatry of their hearts. Which makes Judges chapter 2 pretty devastating, doesn't it? It's not a happy chapter. There's not loads of hope to be found here. So where does it leave us on this Sunday evening? Well, as we close, let me suggest two very brief things. First, we need to look at our own hearts. It's really easy, if you're anything like me, it's really easy to, to read the Old Testament with this sort of self-righteous smugness. A, a book like Judges, just to read it and think, terrible Israel, sinful Israel, how could they behave like this? But Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the experience of Israel is given as an example, a warning to us. In other words, it is a mirror. A mirror that should cause us to stop and think. As James says, not to look and then wander away unchanged, but to stop and think. To be honest with ourselves, to to help us see that in reality we are no better. That by nature all of us want to live for created things rather than our creator. Even as Christians, we find our hearts constantly drawn away from God and towards the idols of our culture, the gods of the nations. And so we need to be honest. We need to be honest about our hearts. We need to see our sin for what it is. But then secondly and crucially, we need to run to our saviour. We said this at the beginning of the series last week that Judges leaves us longing for a true deliverer. Doesn't chapter 2 do this more than anything else? It makes us cry out for the one that can break this cycle. The one that can really rescue us from ourselves. The one that can remake our broken, rebellious hearts. Judges 2 draws us to Jesus. In the New Testament, in John chapter 8, Jesus is there and he's, he's trying to persuade the Pharisees that they need to be rescued. That they can't rely on good works or, or family lineage. They, they need a rescue. Uh, listen to what he says to them. It, it's on the screen. He says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sounds like judges, judges doesn't it? Jesus says, you're a slave to sin. You're, you're caught in a downward spiral because of your deeply rebellious hearts. You're a slave to sin, says Jesus. But then he says these wonderful words, words that we've already sung this evening. You're a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. Only Jesus can break the cycle. Only Jesus can fix the brokenness. Only Jesus can set you free from the slavery of sin. Only Jesus can save you from the retribution that you deserve. How? What does that look like? What will it involve? Well, we're going to see that in these wonderful and weird judges over this term. But now we're going to pray. Let's pray together. I'm going to leave a moment's silence just for us to confess to God the idols of our hearts, the areas where we feel 
but maybe they have something more to offer than the law. Maybe they're worth living for more than him. Heavenly Father, we confess to you now that our hearts run after all sorts of other things. And so as a result, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, like the rest, we were deserving of your wrath, dead in our transgressions and sin. Father, we are sorry for those things. But we thank you for your great love. Father, we thank and praise you this evening that as Paul says, because of your great love for us, your amazing mercy and grace, you have made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That it is by grace we have been saved. Father, please this evening show us the depths of our sin. And then help us to marvel at and trust in our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing in response.